Welcome to Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Today on the show, we have Josh Wentworth. Josh is the owner and head coach of Apex MMA in Covington, Georgia. Josh is a BJJ black belt under Professor Casey Baines. This is an information-dense episode. First, and most fascinating to me, we discuss what some consider to be the future of BJJ instruction, the reverse classroom. Then we get into other topics, such as the ice cream cone grip popularized recently by a friend of the show, Charles Harriet, what is brunch jitsu, the belt rank system, the fallacy of winning in the gym, how to make the most of seminars in BJJ camps, and more. Josh thought he was invited on the show just for his reverse classroom way of teaching, but really, I just liked the guy from the moment I met him. I gravitate towards people with a point of view, and Josh has a point of view about a great many things. I'm also fascinated by people who just practice Kaizen, otherwise known as continuous improvement as a way of life, training, teaching, and business, which Josh just seems to do by nature. Just a reminder to please give us a five-star review on iTunes or just share this podcast with a friend. It really helps us out. And leave us feedback, suggestions, and how we can prove the show. And consider being a patron at anchor.fm forward slash forever white belt. That would really help. Like our Facebook page to get all the latest information at facebook.com forward slash forever white belt. And check us out on Instagram at forever white belt show. Go buy your favorite show swag from us at teespring.com forward slash forever dash white dash belt. And with that, I give you Josh Wentworth. I am Josh Wentworth, better known as Ken Tannen on Reddit. Most people will be aware of my work there, and you probably think I'm fairly obnoxious, which I am. But I'm also (laughs) a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt and the owner and head instructor of Apex MMA in Covington, Georgia. I had the pleasure of meeting Josh at a Globetrotters camp in Arizona. It was great. It was fantastic. I had a fantastic time. That was one of the best experiences I've had in 15 years of jujitsu was that camp. That's awesome, man. I have have questions about that too. We will get to, but first of all, Covington, Georgia, very interesting location. Your academy, I checked on Google Maps and it is a really neat facility and location. Can you talk to us a little bit about Covington, Georgia, the origins of Apex? Sure. So Covington is a tiny little town about 45 minutes east of Atlanta. We're best known for the Vampire Diaries being filmed here. It's frequently called like the, the Hollywood of the South or something because we do have a lot of film stuff that's done down here. The Heat of the Night, the Dukes of Hazard, the Walking Dead stuff. They actually film a decent amount of the Marvel Cinematic Universe stuff here nearby. Wow. There are multiple movie studios currently in construction all around this tiny little town in the middle of nowhere. And so I ended up here because well, I used to live out near Athens, the home of the University of Georgia, uh, Go Dogs, Champions, all that. I lived out there, I worked out there, and I switched jobs to work in Atlanta. And my commute was about two hours each way. And so we moved, we, lo- we were looking for a place about halfway between uh, Atlanta and Athens because my wife was still working in Athens. And we found this little spot. So we have a 26 acre farm here that we purchased because we also have horses and stuff, which mean I own the property that I then eventually built the gym on. So we are out in the woods. If you open the back door of the gym behind me there, you can look out into forest in our horse pastures and stuff. And so we we really just ended up here because the location was convenient and we needed a place for our horses. 
And it just so happens that like the only other jujitsu school is about half an hour away. So I was training there for a while until, uh, until I opened this place. So there's not really anything in the area. So when I started looking to open my place, which has been a long time dream of mine, my wife was like, well, why are we looking at renting places? We'll just build something on the property we already have. And I was like, oh, okay. And I thought, well, maybe we're way too out in the middle of nowhere. And I looked around and there's, you know, elementary and middle schools and high schools within a few minutes. They're all in these neighborhoods. So it actually ended up being a really good location for us. When I looked on the map, I did a, a few things. So I did the satellite view. Then I did the street view. Yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful location. It looks like, you, like you said, like you're going to some sort of like ranch or you're going into the woods and then you see this structure. It looks rather large, like really roomy on yeah, the inside. It looks like you have nice looking wrestling mats. I, I noticed in some of the photographs, you have sort of like a workout facility with some weights yep. some, and uh, little cubbies for the shoes and the water. It looks very cool. And the, the facility, it's not quite as big as I wanted it to be. The, the building itself is 2,400 square feet. I wow. wanted to go 4,500, wow. but it just it ended up being a little out of the price range. And I figured I could, I could make do. So we have about 1,600 square feet of mat space, which is, I've learned a lot of mat space. A lot yeah, of gyms around, great. even around here don't have half that. So wow. I'm very, I've been very happy with the facility and people that visit and the, my students are all pretty happy with it. So it's been good. You are a black belt under uh, uh, Professor Casey Baines, I believe, correct? That is correct. Who himself is a black belt under Jacare out of Atlanta. So we are alliance lineaged, so to speak, there. And uh, why the name Apex MMA? So Apex comes from two things. The first thing is that my, my goal, my, my thought process about jujitsu has always been about the sort of the individual journey of climbing the mountain of skill. You start out at the base of this mountain, you have nothing, you, you work your way up the mountain. And as you go, the mountain gets narrower and narrower, right? Fewer and fewer people reach the top of that mountain, reach each level. By the time you get to the very top of the mountain at that apex, it's this tiny, narrow, small group of people. And I wanted to sort of represent that journey with the gym and its name and its sort of theme. And if you see, see the pictures from the gym, you'll see a mural that my wife did on the wall. That's a series of these like beautiful mountains, mountain scenery and everything like that. Our logo reflects that, etc. Also, Apex appears sooner in the alphabet than many of the other gym names, which means in Google searches of some sorts, I come up first, which is not, a, not an inconsiderate <laughs> thing. And then the second thing is actually kind of a joke. It's a running joke in the jiu-jitsu community related to um, conspiracy theories and things like flat earth and stuff stuff like that. There's another gym that was in South Georgia called um, Terra Planus, which means flat earth, which was a, a joke. They, they actually popped up on Reddit with some guy complaining about them all being crazy, but I know them and have trained with a bunch of them. And it's, it's a hilarious joke. And then, so my logo is a uh, play on the Illuminati all seeing eye pyramid with the little larger pyramid floating above it. And so you'll see the logo has that kind of theme worked into it. So part like a representative of my vision of jujitsu and the jujitsu journey and part just because we're silly people and it's a funny joke, which I oh. think encapsulates my whole approach towards jujitsu as well. There's the like serious grindy, this is a lifetime endeavor side of it. And then there's the playful, we're all just having a good time. This is about enjoying your life side of it. 
instructors that I've talked to all black belts, it seems like you guys have to cater to everyone, all types of people that's what we talk about on the show, whether you're some sort of general working guy, you know, uh, a smaller individual, a wealthy individual, yep. uh, whatever it may be. And that cleverly segues into one of the in- most enthusiastic things about my gym and why I run it the way I do. Um, mm-hmm. And probably the reason that I actually, as a sort of random, no accomplishment black belt, have ended up on this show is that I run my gym in an entirely different way than pretty much every other gym in the world. There are now two other gyms that work this way. The first one being Bruce Hoyer's gym. And he's the one that I actually initially talked to when I you know, was going to open mine and found out that he was doing this to get some of the pitfalls and tips from him. And now, of all people, Lachlan Giles. Can we go back to to the the previous individual? Can you give some context of who that is for people Um, who don't know? I met Bruce via Reddit. He's Sonic BH on Reddit, and he runs a gym. Let's see. uh, Next Edge Academy? Yes. Next Edge is his. So I don't know. I ran into him through Reddit when we were talking about different ways to run gyms and stuff like that. And then I just ended up talking to him and he's been very successful with this running the gym as a reverse classroom. And for anybody who's not familiar with what a reverse classroom is, it means that the curriculum is defined by the student, not Mm. by the instructor. So instead of the instructor coming in today and saying, hey, today we're going over this. The students come in and each one of them has their own lesson that they're working on. And we'll talk about why that's um, important pretty soon. But first, I'd like to to talk about a a little bit about why the sort of how current jujitsu is structured, how it's Mm -hmm. taught, because the way it's currently taught is essentially as if you were trying to teach math to 10 elementary schoolers, 10 middle schoolers, five high schoolers and five college students. You had them all in the same room, all in the same class, and you just threw up on the board basic algebra. Okay, well, if you're trying to teach basic algebra to a bunch of 10, you know, elementary schoolers and middle schoolers, well, most of them have no idea. They they don't even know where to start with that, right? Mm -hmm. A couple of your middle schoolers might be ready to start that. Your high schoolers, a few of them, like they're going to be ready to start that. Your college students and probably some of your high schoolers, they've already done that. They don't need to learn it again, right? They've Mm -hmm. learned it. They've moved on. So you're teaching your lesson to like five dudes out of the 30 that you have in the room. And that's the way jiu-jitsu is taught everywhere, all the time. You've got 30 people, a bunch of them might be white belts, a bunch of them blue, some purple, a couple of browns, maybe another black belt in the room. And you're Mm -hmm. just throwing the same technique at all of them saying, hey, this is what we're doing today. That's terrible. If you tried to teach math like that, they would laugh you out of the room. People would be like, you can't do that. That doesn't work. You don't know what you're doing. Get out. But we're totally comfortable and fine with jujitsu being taught that way. And that's just from the standpoint of the class itself, not even from the standpoint of curriculum development or management. Hmm. Because even on top of that, most gyms have one of three types of curriculum. They either have move of the day at the instructor's whim, which means whatever I thought was interesting today is what we're going to be going. So everybody buckle up or positional blocks, where for some amount of time, maybe a week, maybe a month, we're working on guard. Then we're working on half guard. Then we're working on side control. Then we're working on mount. Then we circle back to guard, right? Or technical blocks, where 
for some period of time, maybe a week, maybe a month, we're working on sweeps. Then we're working on passes. Then we're working on submissions. Then we're working on escapes. And then we circle back to sweeps. So those are kind of the three most common ways that jujitsu is taught from a curriculum standpoint. And all of those suffer from the same problem where if you don't have the prerequisite skills for whatever specific technique is being taught, then when you are shown it, you get to drill it. And then when you start trying to work against resistance, you have zero chance of achieving it and actually getting productive reps in that day, which means you forget it. Things right. that you don't get to actually practice, you forget, which means that you just wasted that entire class period in terms of true development. Does that leave a piece of that technique stuck in your brain for the next time? Sure. But you haven't learned it and you haven't made significant progress towards learning it. Mm -hmm. right? So that's the problem with the way that jujitsu is taught, generally speaking, through our, our entire industry. So then we're going through an individualized process that seems highly time intensive. How do you uh, scale that? So that is one of the major barriers to it. From an instructor mm. standpoint, it is initially very time intensive, right? Because what I am doing initially is I am creating a video library for our curriculum for our white belts, right? Our white belt curriculum is set. It's the techniques that I think best represent the concepts and principles that are relevant to various things like a sweep, a scissor sweep. A scissor sweep is not the highest percentage competition sweep that you're going to find. However, it is a really good sweep for demonstrating things like posture control and how that makes a difference, right? How mm. to make somebody's hips light how you're taking their posts away and then over committing to the sweep. So it's a good demonstrative sweep for the concepts that let you practice those concepts. And you will hit that sweep. It is a functional sweep. It works. It's just sure. not the highest of highest percentage competition level sweeps, but it's right. an excellent representative one. So I have an entire library of those that I have filmed and put together in order in a curriculum that I give to my white belts when they first start. They start on lesson one, which is our fundamental movements, which is upas, shrimps, technical stands, break falls, sit outs, those things. Just get your movement going first. Every white belt, doesn't matter when they start, doesn't matter what else the class is, what everybody else is doing, they mm -hmm. start on those things and they start practicing those things day one, right? So you've pre-recorded these videos yourself yes. then? Yes. I noticed because we went to the website, we clicked under curriculum and I'm like, oh, interesting, curriculum. Yeah. And then there's a login and I'm like, oh, okay, there's some magic behind yeah, you. What, what's yes. going on? So we have that for the white belts. And then after that, once you've gone through the white belt curriculum, your curriculum becomes specific to you. So all the white belts get the same base framework. Then when you're a blue belt, you kind of know from the white belt time what things you're good at, what things you like, what things you want to explore more of, right? Maybe you really liked De La Hiva Guard. So you want to explore more of De La Hiva. So maybe I have five, six videos on different things from De La Hiva that weren't in the white belt curriculum that are a little more difficult, that combo with some of the things from the white belt curriculum. And I put those, I assign that module to you as a blue belt. And I'm like, okay, well, here's your De La Hiva module. And then I'm like, okay, but not just from me, but here's three high-level competitors who are in your weight class that use De La Hiva extensively. Here are instructional videos that they've put out from YouTube. These are modules in your curriculum now as well. Learn from these guys, right? Because I'm 5'7", I weigh 140 pounds, right? If I've got a six foot two, 200-pound student, they're going to play De La Hiva very different than I do. If sure. I can give them Mirigali playing De La Hiva, 
they're mm. going to be able to look at that and be like, oh, ho, ho, this guy can play the same way. I can, I can do these things. Oh, this is great. Whereas I may not have those things. So now my students are getting the benefit of not just learning from me and the jujitsu that is kind of mine that I've made mine over the last 15 years, but the jujitsu that is from everybody, all of these high level instructionals that people have put out. There's no reason as an instructor that my students should not benefit from those, especially when I can guide them to the ones that are like, hey, this dude rolls just like you. He's built like you. He tends to do the same things you like to do, but he's doing it at a world champion level. Look Mm -hmm. at him and see these things that you can take away from him, right? I'm not afraid that my students will look at that and be like, well, why should I learn from you if you're just going to give me this video of this guy? Mm -hmm. I own the building. If you want to use the mats, you just show up and pay the money, right? I'm not supposed to know all of jujitsu, because nobody knows all of jujitsu. There's too much of jujitsu for any one person to know. And if, as an instructor, you're pretending that you know all of jujitsu, that you have all of the answers, then you're doing yourself and your students a disservice, right? There's just mm. no reason for me not to take advantage of these world-class experts in specific positions and specific places or with specific body types to make sure that my students are getting the absolute best instruction I can give them. You obviously then emphasize cross-training and researching others Mm -hmm. online. Your thoughts on judo, wrestling? Love it. So we're a USA Wrestling certified club. I'm a USA Wrestling leader. I just had an 11-year-old competing at a wrestling tournament. He was competing today. He went two and one, took second place. Very proud of him. Got another student that um, trained with us for about eight months. And then this year walked onto his high school wrestling team and is currently wrestling varsity and has a very good record. Uh, I don't know exactly what it is, but I know he's only lost a few matches. So we're very pro wrestling, pro wrestling, but uh, Mm -hmm. no, we're in favor of wrestling. I do a lot of wrestling instruction. Our white belt curriculum contains a lot of basic wrestling as the very first things that people learn. We teach wrestling as a fundamental part of jujitsu. And I encourage my students to play by wrestling rules sometimes. Judo, we do less of because my background does not contain as much judo specific stuff. I have some guys that have more judo experience that will do more judo stuff. And occasionally we get visitors who are black belts in judo and things like that, who um, I'll sometimes move into like, hey guys, we have a special guest. So we're going to abandon our normal reverse classroom thing. And we're going to do a little move of the day stuff with our guests because they're a specialist and I'll Mm -hmm. film whatever they're doing and add it to the library. So we get a a filmed taught technique by somebody who is an expert at that technique that then goes into the library for future use by people that might be interested in that. Gosh, that's pretty amazing how you're leveraging like a video archive Mm -hmm. for actual in-class instruction as well. Do these students realize how lucky they are that they're getting not only like in-class sort of training, but sort of, if you think about it, out-of-class training Mm -hmm. as well, right? So we do, we do run into some weird things where my students who have only ever trained with me Mm. will go visit other gyms Mm. and be like, what are, why are we all sitting here watching the same technique? What is going on? When do we actually get to practice? Mm. And like, they're confused by the format of these other gyms because they just, they, they didn't realize that was how most jujitsu was. So Mm. when they come back, they're like, yeah, I can't stand that. I don't, I don't know why they do that. And then even students who like, they may have gotten their blue belt from another instructor, right? Or even their purple belt from another instructor. And then they've Mm. gotten used to this format and they go visit other gyms for actual classes. And they're like, I just, I couldn't stand sitting there for Mm. half an hour watching this technique that I already know I don't use, or Mm. I already know I use all the time. 
I didn't need to see it again. I just sat there doing nothing for half an hour. So they definitely do get the idea that like, yes, this is, they are getting a, a maximum benefit experience training the way we train. So even if, you know, maybe I am not necessarily the world's best instructor, the environment that I have is one that is simply more conducive to my students' learning. Conversely, then, do you ever get like a, someone that's trained elsewhere, perhaps in a higher belt capacity or something, and then they come into your place and they're like, what the heck is going on here? That is the immediate reaction from every visitor that we have who comes into one of the regular classes instead of an open mat. They're like, what do you mean? What do I want to work on today? Hmm. I'm like, what do you want to work on today? And they're hmm. like, uh, so and many, many of them are not prepared for that question. They've never had an instructor ask them what they want to work on. I've asked purple belts what their competition game is. Cause I'm like, well, if you don't have anything specific you're working on, just work on your competition game. And they're like, my what? Right. I don't like your competition game, you know, your, your best three moves, right? Your, your takedown, your pass and your submission. Uh, they don't know. They've never had anybody interact with them in a way that puts their training needs first and asks them, well, what do you need? What do you want to work on? What are you working on? Where are the weak points in your game? Where have you had trouble? What do you need to be drilling? They've never had anybody approach them that way and they are caught off guard with it. They're not prepared for the thought process that has to come in behind that where they actually examine their jujitsu and determine where are my weaknesses? What are my strengths? What is my best technique? What is my worst technique? How am I chaining my sweeps and my passes together? How am I connecting my takedowns to my submissions? They've never thought about it because nobody has ever asked them that question. And so it, we do get an initial reaction that is like, what are y'all doing? What is, what is all this? So I've yet to have anybody who didn't like it though. Right. I've never had anybody at the end of the class that was like, man, that's really weird. I don't know. I can't, I couldn't do this. I'm right. Everybody is like, man, that's great. I wish we did this back in my gym. And mm -hmm. the thing is, if you talk to a lot of instructors and you look deeper into their gyms, a lot of places, their competition teams, their full-time students, their pro students train much closer to that way. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Help us visualize this because I'm having a hard time mm -hmm. seeing it in terms of Joe's uh, late stage white belt, mm -hmm. maybe needs to work on the scissor sweep. And then Jane is a blue belt. Perhaps she's doing some Delhiva type of stuff. So what does it look like? Because it sounds like chaos. So the way the, this, the classroom kind of breaks down is at the beginning of class, we have a mandatory white belt warm-up. It's only mandatory for the white belts. The color belts are usually kind of using that time to do some research on what they're going to be doing or mm. doing their own warm-up and stretching stuff, right? While I run my white belts, right? When the white belt warm-up ends, we pair up. If we have a lot of people, I'll pair them up by weight class so that everybody is working with somebody that is close to their weight as possible. If we only have a few people, everybody tends to gravitate towards their kind of preferred drilling partners totally fine, right? Then you start off at this point, everybody knows what they're working on, right? They either looked it up before class or they're looking it up on their phone or one of the tablets that we have in the gym for that. I have free Wi-Fi for all of my students and they know what they're working on. So you get with your partner and person A starts drilling. They have a four minute drilling block where they are drilling their technique over and over and over again. And our first drilling block is done at what we would call no resistance, right? Okay. You don't fall over for no reason, but you're not really doing anything to make your opponent fail or, or interfere with their executing the technique. They so drill it's hard. almost a warm up in a way. Yeah. Right. It's just to familiarize yourself with the gross movement of the technique that you're doing. If you run into a problem, you can reconsult the video. You're not too worried about getting maximum reps in that stage. Right. You have a 30 second break. 
We switch. Now, person B, they work their technique for four minutes. And again, this first drilling block, if say their partner, they're the blue belt, their partner is a newer white belt, may not be familiar with De La Hiva, stuff like that. They'll use that time to help set their partner up, right? For this is how you need to stand. This is the reaction I'm looking for. This is what I'm going to be doing. This is the reaction that that you should be doing to stay safe. Things like that, right? Mm -hmm. Just to set up your drill. Four minutes, get some reps in get your um, gross motor movements down, and then we switch, right? So back to person A. But this time, the intensity of the drill goes up a little bit. We go to what's called good habits, right? So you're keeping your posture up. You're keeping your hands where they're supposed to be, right? You're trying to keep your base in place. You're not like posting and cross-posting and like really actively defending, but you're doing all the sort of passive positional defenses that you're supposed to do to Mm -hmm. kind of make sure that your partner has to do the move. Right. Mm -hmm. And we may stay in that level of defense for all of the rest of the drilling rounds, or you might then increase because our next drilling round. So, well, let me back up a second, because after this second one, we circle up. So we do four minutes, person A, four minutes, person B, four minutes, person A, four minutes, person B. Then the whole class circles up for a QA. and a We usually spend about five or six minutes where I ask everybody, hey, how were things? Right. How is your drilling going? Did everything seem to work okay? Does the technique make sense to you? Do you kind of get what you're go, you know, what you're trying to accomplish? Just a real quick checkpoint with everybody. If somebody has a question, sometimes I'll have them demo like, okay, well, you ran into a problem. Show me the problem. And then we'll just real quick go over like, okay, well, this was happening because your leg is too low, right? Your leg needs to be high up in the hip. You've got it low down or right above the knee. You've got to get that up there, that kind of thing, right? Where mm-hmm. we troubleshoot that. And sometimes it'll be like, I'll look at one of my giant purple belts and be like, that's a question that this guy can answer. Show him why that works, right? And he'll be like, aha, yeah, you do this. Because the technique is something that I, as a 140-pound dude, don't ever use. But my 270-pound purple belt, it's his A game, right? Mm -hmm. So why am I going to try to answer that question? I'm going to have him in. So we workshop, right? It's not a instructor-led, this is the answer kind of session. It's a workshopping period for the whole class. Then we go back and we, again, with this new knowledge from the circle up, do four minutes of drilling for person A, four minutes of drilling of person B. And you might still be at good habits on this one. Or if you're comfortable with the material, you may move to what's called full defense, where you're a, your partner is not counterattacking, but they are actively doing everything they can to make your technique fail. They're posting, they're pulling their heart arms back, they're moving out of way. Like if you fail to lock them in place, they might just get up and leave, right? All of those things they're going to do defensively. Now, if you're working on a sweep, they're not going to suddenly pass your guard or wrist lock you in the middle of it necessarily. They're only trying to make that specific technique fail. Because then as we move into actual live rolling or specific sparring, they'll have an opportunity for counterattacks and things like that. But the goal is to get increasing scaled resistance against the technique that you're practicing. Then after those rounds of drilling, we have another circle up. We do another Q&A session. And during this, if we have an even number of students on the mats, I'm just walking around looking at everybody and checking for things that I can see like, oh, hey, you're having problems with this because of this. Put your hand here instead of there, right? Make sure you're pulling his head down, stuff like that. Troubleshooting everybody as we go. If we have an odd number, I'll jump in as that person's drilling partner for their round and I will alternate which drilling round is theirs so that my drilling round, I then go walk around and check everybody. I always get at least some amount of time to walk around and check everybody's technique while they're drilling. And it does look very chaotic. Everybody is doing something different 
But at the same time, everybody's doing it at the same time. Everybody has their own area of the mat. It's just two people drilling because there's no fundamental reason why two people who are drilling have to drill the same technique. Mm. There just isn't. But that's how we always tend to do things. And there's, there's no reason for it. Earlier, you mentioned, refer to the video. So you must have some phones on the mat then. People are grabbing their phones and is that... Yep. Phones. I have four tablets that are dedicated to the gym that can roam around. You can log in and check the videos on the tablets. You can have your phone next to you to pull it up. Because again, also, I encourage people to be learning from YouTube videos, fanatics, instructionals, grapplers guides, stuff like that. So I might have somebody who's like, yeah, I've got the lapel encyclopedia pulled up on the tablet so that I can work worm guard. Boom, right there. So they can refer to it back, right? Because that's a huge knowledge source that I mm-hmm. want everybody to have available. And I've, again, I've never had a problem with people having phones on the mat. And it's one of those things I don't understand instructors that do have a problem with it. For those instructors out there who are interested in even approaching this or starting this, some suggestions on how to get started on, in this So as an instructor, the most important first step is figuring out what you think is important in jujitsu. Because when I put together my curriculum, it was based on the things that I believe are the most important to learn and in the order that I think informs the next step. Once you know that, it becomes relatively easy to just sit down and film a whole bunch of videos that are all one to two minutes long that show each piece and then put them together somewhere. I use Action Note, which I highly recommend. It's a fantastic piece of software. It's relatively cheap and it works incredibly well, good management, etc. But whatever you use, you can just use Google Classroom or Notes or big Excel spreadsheet to keep the links from YouTube in. Who knows? Whatever. Whatever your organizational method is that you like, use that. But once you have the framework, filling it in with videos is relatively simple. What I will caution people against is making their framework too large. People, when they start thinking about this, suddenly they have a thousand techniques. That's too many techniques. Keep it simple. Remember that the focus is on developing the basic competencies that take someone from white belt to blue belt, because that's where you want a standardized curriculum for those beginners to establish a known knowledge baseline and a known skill baseline for your beginners, for your white belts. So So Josh, you're still a believer in the fundamentals then? Absolutely, because the fundamentals are the the pieces of early jujitsu that demonstrate the concepts. To a point, nothing is fundamental and everything is fundamental, right? One thing that I'm fond of saying is that everything that you learn in the first 18 months of jujitsu are your basics, and everything you learn after 18 months is advanced. And it doesn't matter what those things are. If somebody taught you barimbolos and crab rides and heel hooks in the first six months, and you didn't see an arm bar until you'd been training for two years, you'd be like, oh, arm bars are for advanced students. Heel hooks are for white belts because it's all contextual, right? It's those things that you learn at the beginning. Those create your fundament. Those are the things that you're built on. That's your foundation. And that's why as an instructor, knowing what my fundamentals are is important to building that base that create my students' fundamentals. And again, I'm a very wrestling heavy coach. Like after I teach people escapes, they go straight to standing. They start learning takedowns. That's like their second week of work is single legs, double legs, body lock takedowns, and how to combo them. I know instructors that wouldn't teach that until somebody was a purple belt, right? They wouldn't even consider teaching takedowns until somebody was four, five, six years into training, right? Mm -hmm. But to me, takedowns are like, that's step two. 
You know, if mm-hmm. you can get back up to your feet, you need to be then taking your partner down, right? That's step two. So ha- knowing what your fundamentals are as a black belt and as an instructor is what it takes to be able to then create your curriculum that is going to create the fundamentals for your students. And then after that, when you hit blue belt, that's when generally you have fewer blue belts. So the workload goes down a little bit. And as you get more of them, and as you create more of these self-contained modules, like advanced De La Hiva stuff, or advanced leg locks, or advanced takedowns, or advanced kimuras, or advanced headlocks, right? Where it's a bunch of more in-depth, transition-heavy, combo-heavy techniques surrounding one of those fundamental components from the white belt curriculum. As you create those, your workload goes down. Because now when a new blue belt comes in who has a similar game, right? Because there's only so many things that you can really take a direction towards. You just drop them one of your existing modules. So it's Mm -hmm. only that front wave of creating new modules, new content, new systems, new setups, and getting those into your curriculum system that is very labor heavy. Once Mm -hmm. a component is created and integrated into the system, then it's as easy as just selecting it for a student. And as we go, I'm hoping to be able to get uh, action notes specifically a little more integrated for the students so that they can actually browse through the available modules and pick them themselves so that it's even more self-directed. They can go through and say, oh, hey, I was really interested in this daily Hiva stuff that I saw that my partner was working on. I'm going to add that to my modules, right? So I'm going to work on that too. So the more of that you have built out, the less effort and the less work it, it is for you as an instructor and the more time you can spend with individual focus on your students, right? With their problem points and really researching and developing for your specific students what they need as opposed to having to build out this curriculum. But that also means like you don't have to worry about what you're going to teach a new white belt, right? You never have to. You just, oh, here's your button. Go. We do your intro class together. Me, You could do a one-on-one intro class with every new white belt because everything else about your class is automated. Everybody already knows what they're doing except this one new guy. So they get the instructor's individual one-on-one attention from day one. And then you feed them into your pipeline curriculum and off they go. And you know it works because you've done it with a hundred, a thousand people already who have gone through it. And you know that they'll learn, they will learn the bits and pieces and they'll put it together and it will work because it has worked every time. It also gives the other students an opportunity to sort of coach each other and teach each mm-hmm. other to some extent as well, right? Absolutely. And that's encouraged. Mm-hmm. The mentor system is highly encouraged in my gym. I encourage my bigger purple belts to adopt my bigger white belts. I encourage my smaller white belt or blue belts and purple belts to adopt my smaller white belts. I encourage my, my ladies to adopt each other, right? My lady purple belt. I encourage her to help encourage and guide the new white belt ladies so that they understand like, oh, okay, I'm getting support from somebody who is similar to me. They've struggled the same way I've struggled. They have a similar experience to what I have. And it helps people relate and stay in the gym and keep working and understand that these challenges that they face are not brand new. They're not unique to them. They aren't an especially slow learner or anything like that. They just, they're having the same struggles that everybody else has. And here's Hmm. another person who's had those same struggles. And especially when I get kids like, man, oh, dude, I had this guy training, come train with me from another gym. He is six foot four. He weighs about 330, 340 pounds. The guy's a giant, right? Huge dude, super nice guy. But he, uh, he got his blue belt and his old gym had just, they were hounding him to learn how to invert. 
They, okay. they had this dude trying to invert and bolo people. <laughs> okay. And I'm like, yeah, and he okay. was just getting frustrated and upset and thinking that there was something wrong mm. with him for not being able to learn this skill, right? Mm. That, that they were just insisting that he should learn. So eventually he left that gym and he came and trained with me for a while instead. And I was like, nah, dude, you don't need to learn how to do that. Here, I'll show you how to snap people down and ankle pick them instead. And like, mm. it took him 15 minutes to learn how to do that because when you're huge, you can take advantage of that by snapping people down and ankle picking them. <laughs> sure. And then I paired him up with my six foot two, 320 pound purple belt. And all of a sudden it was like, nah, dude, here's the guy that has the game for you. Here's the hmm. deep half smash pass, heavy pressure, heavy head control standing. This is a game that is suited to you. And it was like, it was revolutionary for him, right? Hmm. Because he had somebody just like him who had already been through it to help him learn instead of somebody trying to tell him that he needed to have the game of somebody a third his size. So yeah, big proponent of the mentor system. Sometimes that the instructors are concerned that let's say blue belt, you get some purple belts that are just missing some fundamentals, right? And they get a little frustrated. And so they end up like going back to the fundamentals, which I have no problem mm -hmm. with. People should go back to the fundamentals and review things always. How are you sort of staying on top of that, given that everyone is so autonomous? And how are these guys and gals not missing those little details? So it becomes goal-based. If you, as a purple belt, are accomplishing your goals, I don't care. I get to roll with them all the time. I watch them roll. I have a four-camera system in the gym that records everything that happens on the mats. I usually spend most Sundays reviewing rolling footage from the previous mm. week. So if I see somebody doing something egregious where I'm like, dude, this was a terrible mistake. The only reason you didn't get your back taken and choked unconscious is because this guy's a day three white belt. Are you sure that you wanted to be doing this? I will tell them. I'll just let them know. I'll, I will pull the clip from the footage, post it in the gym's Discord, tag them and be like, hey, man, if you do this against anybody who's good, they're going to choke you. You may need to review this lesson. And I'll just post a link to the lesson that covers right. whatever the problem was. If I don't have a lesson for it, ah, that tells me maybe I need to film something that explains why this is a bad idea or why this is like, what do you need to watch out for when you're doing whatever this was, right? Mm -hmm. And because I always had the ability to look at them and say, hey, man, you need to go back and review this lesson and just drop that into their curriculum. This is what you need to be doing next week. And they can always tell me, yeah, I know, but I don't care. Okay, if you don't care, I don't care. Now, that means that when it comes time for me to evaluate and I'm looking at you and you're like, why am I not a brown belt yet? Mm -hmm. Well, remember four months ago when I said you may want to go back and look at this and you said you didn't care? You may want to go back and look at this because I am at the end of the day, the final arbiter of the rank that I extend to people. If they don't meet the criteria for what I feel like is that rank, they just don't rank up. If they want to be mm. a purple belt forever because they don't care, then that's fine. I don't care. I've got dude who's, um, I don't know, his late 40s. He's struggling to get me not to promote him to, to blue belt coming up. He deserves to be a blue belt. I want him to finish working through the curriculum so that he has the knowledge framework to then help other new people. Not necessarily mm -hmm. because I think he specifically needs to know these specific techniques, but because mm -hmm. if he's working with some new person as a blue belt, I want him to be able to answer those questions and be familiar with what they're doing. I'm going to give him a blue belt because he has what it takes, right? Mm -hmm. But he doesn't want to. He's probably never going to get a purple belt, right? He's going to be at blue belt and he's just not going to care. 
He's going to mm-hmm. do the parts of jujitsu that he likes, and he's going to keep doing them that way. And it's going to mean he's going to be like a 10-year blue belt because he doesn't care about expanding his game or sharpening it really to the point of purple belt proficiency. And he doesn't care, and I don't care. I'm not about pushing him into being a purple belt. He can't keep being a white belt forever, though, right? Mm-hmm. I got to move you past that, right? I got to get <laughs> you into that blue belt track so you can do whatever you want. Once you get the blue belt, you can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. But I also have another white belt. He's in the gym five, six, seven times a week, working every day. He's looking to be, he makes his MMA debut in April. He's looking to hit blue belt soon. And then he's looking to sharpen his stuff up and hit purple belt soon after that. Two very different goals. These two guys train together all the time. They're great training partners for each other, even though one of them is 20 and one of them is like 47 and they both have totally different goals. But Again, for fundamentals, if my really ambitious white belt gets halfway through blue belt and I see him making mistakes, I'm just like, hey, go back and review this. Done. Right? So it really, it gives me more control over seeing people making those mistakes and missing out on those fundamentals where I can then go back and tell them, hey, you need to review this. I don't have to stop the whole class and teach a lesson on mount escapes because I saw one blue belt who keeps messing up his mount escape. I just send that guy back to practice mount escapes next week. Everybody else keeps doing what they're doing. No problem. And because there's not a 30 to 40 minute lecture period taking up half of every one of my classes, I get to see all of my students roll more often. I get to roll with them more often. I get to see them drilling more often. And I have more time for them to spend on the actual drilling process as opposed to time spent listening to me talk. And while Mm -hmm. I do love talking, (laughs) And many people do enjoy listening to me talk. There's plenty of time for that outside of the gym where they are not paying to learn jujitsu because me talking at them is not the best way for them to learn jujitsu. Can you walk me through your philosophy on the belt system? Walk me through each belt color Mm -hmm. and what it means for you uh, in order for someone to hit those different colors. Mm -hmm. This conversation happens a lot online. People have asked this, and my views on this have actually changed quite a bit over the years. And I have it documented in various places on my old training blog and on Reddit where this conversation has come up. And this is where I've kind of landed on it. As a white belt, your job is to learn how to move yourself. Your primary purpose at white belt is learning how to move yourself first, learning to escape, 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 escape back to your feet, then learning how to move into your takedowns learning how to move yourself to pass guard, learning how to move yourself to control a position. Your focus is less on moving the other person and more on moving yourself. But white belt is, it's mastering what I view as the fundamental components of jujitsu. Defense first, escapes, defend, escape, then advance, and then submit. So for example, my first stripe curriculum. We teach you all of the escapes from the basic positions, mount, side control, uh, back control, knee on belly, front headlock position, those escapes back to standing, right? We don't teach them to regard. We teach Hmm. them to escape back to standing. Yeah, I keep hearing you say standing, standing. That's very interesting. Yes, everybody gets taught. And then I teach them basic takedowns, single leg, double leg, body lock takedown, two different ones. One's a Tani Otoshi and one's uh, called a twist back that I learned from wrestling. And then how to combo among those, those takedowns. Then we teach them basic guard passes. I teach the Toriando, I teach the knee cut, I teach the double under, and I teach the leg drag. We're still in our first stripe. Then I teach the arm bar from top side, right? So the uh, side control position where your opponent is turned away from you onto their side, we call that top side. I teach the arm bar from there. That's the end of first stripe. 
So you get all of that. Now, what that results in is that every one of my first stripe white belts has a functional competition game plan. They have a mm. functional self-defense game plan. They have mm. a functional MMA game plan at one stripe. If they get into a fight after mastering, if all they ever do is master the one stripe material, they will be able to beat most people on the planet in a fight because mm. they can get up off the ground. They can put the other person on the ground and then they can arm bar them. But then we move into in the second stripe, it moves into more, more guard passing, more. We finally teach them sweeps from the bottom instead of just stand up. Because at first, even from closed guard, I teach just stand up, right? Post technical stand, get up. So move through that. But white belt is about learning my curriculum, my version of what is the fundamentals of jujitsu. And mm -hmm. for every instructor, that's going to look different. Everybody has a different view of their own fundamentals. We talked about that just a little while ago. Anyways, but that's white belt. Blue belt is then about expanding your game away from my version of the fundamentals. That's when I tell people, go get on YouTube. Look at every dumb, crazy thing. Try buggy chokes. Try flying arm bars. Try rolling omoplatas. Try whatever, everything. Get it, find it, explore it. Blue belt is the exploration belt. That's mm -hmm. when you really open up your game and you start to build on the fundamentals that you've learned and you use those fundamentals to then give you a platform to try everything else, as much stuff as you can. Because as you get to late blue belt, that's when things start to narrow back down. Because at purple belt, I expect you to have the framework of your jujitsu. This is what your version of jujitsu looks like. You'll have your own preferred takedowns, your own preferred guard passes, your own preferred sweeps, your own preferred submissions that fit together for you. And purple belt is then about sharpening those until you can threaten anybody with them. If you are a late stage purple belt, I expect you to be able to tap black belts with your game if you can keep them in your game. That's the idea is that you have your jujitsu and you are sharpening it until you can threaten anybody with it. As you get to brown belt, that's when you start to expand again. So now you're looking for that B game and C game where, hey, I couldn't keep this guy in my A game or I ran my A game into his A game and his A game was beating me. Now I need a, I need a plan B. So you're looking now to build those branches that take you from that late stage purple belt, early stage brown belt up into black belt where you have an A game, B game, C game, D game that are all pretty close to the same level. You have fallback plans. You can threaten anybody with your A game. And if that doesn't work, you've got a B game that you can probably catch them with anyways. And so on all the way down. You know, that's what being a baby black belt is about. If I'm rolling with a white belt or a blue belt or a purple belt, like early purple belt, I'm beating them with my depth of skill. Even if I'm not that great at a technique, I can just put them in a place where they don't have good options because they don't have the experience left, right? They don't have the experience to know what's going on. They don't have the reactions. I know what they're going to try because I know what options they have well before they try it, right? And that's what you're doing as a black belt to beat those guys, right? So that's what like baby black belt is. And then as you get into the experience, like higher tier black belts, that's when you're just like, yeah, everything from like brown belt down is just automatic reactions for them. Right. I've rolled with people that like they are so good that I feel like a day one white belt because their depth of knowledge everywhere is such that half of everything is just automatic. Mm. And that's that senior level black belt. But leading up to that, right, it's fundamentals, exploration, development and sharpening, and then secondary exploration and development for white, blue, purple, brown. 
Your thoughts on losing failure? Super important. You should do it as much as possible. Like it is a core component of learning because when you lose, when you fail at something, you add a data point like, aha, this is a thing that I know doesn't work. This exposes a hole in what I'm doing. This gives me an avenue of direction to work towards. So if you go through, you see this in um, MMA and to a lesser extent in jujitsu, where people who are undefeated for a long time have their first loss and then it derails their whole career. They never recover because they don't know how to react to failure. They don't know how to go back to the drawing board and rebuild with that information it throws everything that they know about themselves into disarray because they aren't experienced with it. They don't know what failure is like. They don't know what it's like to to have that weakness exposed and then be able to go back and analyze it. And that's one of the reasons that like, as a coach, I'm happy to just go out and get wrecked, fail, try, throw myself at people and be like, ah, this didn't work. Ha ha ha. I got armbarred, whatever. Because I'll take that information back. I'm about to be 42 I'm not really competing to win anything anymore. Like I had my shot, but Mm -hmm. for my students, if I can compile that information and then help them learn how to deal with failure and like show them, Hey, look, coach went out and he lost man. And he just came back into the gym as happy as he could be to train that exact sequence that beat him. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. That's how I should deal with failure. If I lose, I should just take that information and come back and work on it. I'm not devastated. Losing isn't the end of your career. It's just another data point. And I've got guys that like hate to lose. My dude who's making his MMA debut, he hates losing. Mm-hmm. Hates it. Every time it happens to him, it is a crushing, devastating experience in the moment. But the next day when he's in the gym, he's like, all right, coach, show me that thing that guy got me with. We're going to practice that. Hey, come here, practice. Do this to me. Do this to me. Do this to me. He just jumps right on it. He's drilling his way through it. And because he has that experience and because he has that reaction to it, he improves immensely from every failure, which you just don't get from your victories. Like Hmm. he learns so much more and everybody learns so much more from a hard fought battle that you lose than from a 15 second submission that you hit on somebody. If you just slide in and heel hook a guy, you didn't learn anything which is fine when your goal is not necessarily to learn, but to collect the medals right then, right there. Like nobody is going into worlds to learn. They're going to worlds to win a world championship. Mm -hmm. So a bunch of 15 second heel hook victories or something is exactly what they're after. But as a white belt, as a blue belt, even as a purple belt, Nobody gives a sh- how, can I can I swear on your podcast? Sure, go ahead. Do not swear. Okay, <laughs> nobody gives a shit about your colored belt medals. So nobody cares, right? You can you can go out and lose constantly at white, blue, and purple belt, and yeah. it doesn't mean anything. Brown belt people kind of care. It's like oh, because people look to see who's winning the, the the majors at brown belt to see who the up and coming black belts are. But plenty of dudes have smoked the majors at brown belt and then vanished. Like you Mm. never see them again, do anything at black belt. So nobody cares if you're winning these colored belt events. So take those as, as practice, right? It's another opportunity to prepare for the higher tier, more meaningful competition that you're really after, which is the, the black belt stuff. What if you see someone who's went through the videos, you know, they got the stuff down, but you just see them continuously or regularly losing. Is that going to stop you from promoting them? First, we have to define losing. Are they going out to compete, doing their best and just getting trashed by people over and over again? Is Like that's losing. If you're going out to compete and you are trying to win medals and you are getting beat, 
you're losing. If you're just getting tapped in the gym, you're not losing. There's no medals. There's no, there's no winning in the gym. So you can get tapped a bunch in the gym. I don't care. It doesn't mean anything in terms of my promotion criteria. Okay. If you know that, that means something for I some mean, instructors like within their academy. So that's a, an interesting viewpoint as well. See, I super disagree with anybody that views it that way because the gym is always going to be an asynchronous environment, right? Two people rolling in the gym are not going to be rolling at the same intensity on a given day. They're not going to be rolling with the same goals. They are frequently going to be largely mismatched in either skill or size or whatever age, all of those things. So just because somebody is getting tapped in the gym on a regular basis doesn't really say anything about their overall skill level. They may be spending their time in the gym being very learning focused all the time. They're looking to work on their weaknesses. So they're always kind of playing to the weakest parts of their game or playing into the strongest parts of their partner's game because they are trying to learn in the gym. And that means they're getting tapped all the time because as soon as they stop getting tapped by something, as soon as it starts working and they're comfortable with it, they move on to another weak point. So it seems like, oh, just as they were getting good, they started getting tapped a bunch. Well, that's because they are moving on to their next item, right? They're continually looking to develop their skill by working on their weaker points. And it makes it look like they're just getting wrecked in the gym all the time. And now if that person goes out to compete and cleans house, you know, oh, oh, okay. They're competing in competition. They're practicing in the gym. Now, if they go out to competition and they tell you, look, I'm going out here, I'm going to win, and they just get smoked. All right, well, we need to talk about your goals and your training methods and how focused you are in the gym and things like that. But a lot of that does, especially with promotion-wise, matter based on their goals. I'm happy to promote someone to blue belt and even purple belt based on their personal level of development as opposed to their skill relative to everyone else. Beyond that, you need to be able to implement as a brown belt, right? I I have to see you able to handle other students in the way that I would expect a brown belt to handle them, right? You should not be struggling with a blue belt that outweighs you by 30 pounds if you're a brown belt. And I should be seeing that. But that's also like, that's not a secret that I keep in the gym. I tell people, okay, man, if you want this promotion, if you want to get to blue belt, or purple belt. These are the things that I need to see from you in terms of your game. I need to see this kind of growth in this area. I need to, I need you to demonstrate to me during your roles that you can execute in this way against these people. If you want to get your brown belt, I need to see that you can execute against these people in this way. These are the things that I'm looking for specifically. So it's not going to be a secret for any of my students, but it also isn't going to necessarily require that they be going out and getting gold medals in competition at their current rank, unless their goal is, as stated to me, to be a top-level competitor, right? Like my dude who's going to make his MMA debut, he'll get his blue belt. Like he's gotten gold medals at white belt and stuff. And he's ready as soon as he finishes the curriculum, he's going to get promoted straight to blue belt probably the month before his MMA debut. He'll be ready for it. He'll gotten through the curriculum. He's put in the work. But for him to get from blue to purple belt, he's going to have to win some shit. Why? Because his goal is to be a professional fighter. And if you want to be a professional fighter, your criteria is different than my 53-year-old CrossFit guy who is just looking to do something different 
to mix up his workouts. That's just the way it is, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to have different goals. You're going to have different success criteria based on those goals. And your belt is going to a degree reflect your success criteria. It also has a component of my success criteria because I'm not going to just time and grade promote somebody up to brown belt and then have some visiting three-stripe white belt come in and beat the crap out of them and then be like, man, I don't know about that. But I'm also not going to hold somebody at blue belt forever just because they don't compete or lost their one competition every year or whatever because their skill level and their knowledge level is going to grow. And as long as they are growing, and then there is no reason not to promote them within the context of their goals. Now, let's touch back on what we talked about earlier in terms of the way that you approach mm -hmm. instruction. What can the student who's interested in what you're doing, but is, you know, they're at a traditional academy and they just can't go through that process currently. What, what can they do? Right. So this is, this is kind of how I got to wanting to run my gym the way I do run it. And it's because I was in those traditional gyms and I had a very low training volume because to a degree, just high training volume will make up for any sort of instructional deficit in the structure and curriculum. If you train enough, you'll just get good. Well, I wasn't, I was not training enough at all. I was training like once a week, maybe sometimes I would go three weeks out of town for work without getting to train. And so when I was in the gym, I needed to make the absolute best use of every second that I was training. And that's how you succeed. And that's how you develop when you're in an environment that isn't tailored to your specific goals. And the way you do that is to be one mindful. Think about your jujitsu. What are you doing? What do you want to accomplish in a role? That's step one is to know okay, when I'm going into this role, I want to get a takedown or I want to pull guard. It doesn't matter which one of those it is as long as you know which one it is. Have that narrow focus. So start with step one and be like, okay, well, if I want to get a takedown, what takedown do I want to get? Okay, do I know that takedown? Have I ever drilled it before? No. Well, I better get some practice time in on that takedown, which means either before or after class or with a friend or if you have to during the roles, that's when your major development is going to happen. Ideally, when you're doing this, you have some experience. You're going to be a mid-level blue belt. And that's when this hits most people is that mid to late stage blue belt where suddenly just showing up isn't enough to automatically make you good. So you start to kind of plateau and you're not sure what to do. Well, you usually you have the skill base to grab a white belt during a roll and do what's called active drilling, which means you want to work on a takedown. All right, white belt, stand up. And then you get your grips. You have to know, right? You're going to have to look up a video or something and know what you need to do to make this thing happen. Practice getting your grips against this white belt. Then practice executing your takedown. Practice it. It's going to fail. This white belt's going to take you down. He's going to pull guard on you. All kinds of stuff's going to happen. But you got to put in the reps. You're putting in the reps while you're rolling. Active drilling. Use those white belts. Use those white belts as, as involuntary drilling dummies. They can't stop you. Then you move on to your next piece. Okay, well, I got it to the ground. What do I want to do next? Oh, I want to pass guard because I got a takedown. Okay, well, what pass am I doing? Okay, well, what grips do I need for that? Practice getting those grips, keeping those grips. Then, you know, that you may do that for a week. You may do nothing except practice getting the grips that you need for your guard pass for a week, for two or three classes, and then practice executing. 
because you are focusing in with narrow, specific, measurable goals. Your goal when you come in might be, okay, I'm going to attempt this takedown five times tonight. And then it might be, I'm going to attempt it twice in every roll. And then I'm going to achieve it twice tonight. And then I'm going to achieve it five times tonight until you're comfortable with whatever level of expertise you have at that takedown. And the same thing for your guard pass. I'm going to attempt it. I'm going to just get the grips five times tonight. I'm going to get the grips in every roll tonight against everybody. I'm going to achieve this pass against two white belts. I'm going to achieve this pass against everybody. I'm going to achieve it over and over again tonight. I'm going to pass everybody's guard 10 times. A little unrealistic. Maybe dial that one down. Make sure that the goals that you're setting are both measurable and achievable. If anybody works in corporate nonsense has heard SMART goals, which is specific, measurable, achievable, something, something, Mm -hmm. something. There's something to that. You need to know specifically what your goal is. You need to know how to measure it and you need to be able to achieve it. That's why setting goals for like tapping people is almost always terrible. If your goal is to tap your instructor, like that's an awful goal. It's hard to measure. It's almost never going to happen. You're just going to get frustrated or you might achieve it in a meaningless way. They might be like, yeah, whatever. Oh yeah, I'm trying my, my Q level game where I just give you my arm and then I try to do a backflip. You know, it's like, oh, I got uh, tap. Oh, well, I blew my own shoulder out. Good job, buddy. You tapped your instructor in a meaningless way, but you achieved your goal. Not a good goal, right? So having those specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, timely goals, that is extremely important. And you just, you have to take advantage of the time you have, which is that rolling time. The drilling periods are generally going to be a warm up for you. They're kind of a wasted time. Maybe you get lucky and you're one of the five people in the class that the technique of the day is relevant to. And it's something that, oh, that really fits in your game. Most of the time you're not going to be, right? So that is just take that time, work, drill, use it as body movement, things like that. If you can find an opportunity to kind of practice part of what you want to practice during those drills, do that. Don't fuck off to the corner and do your own thing while your coach is trying to run class. So that's very rude, but do what you can within the context of the drilling to practice the goals that you actually have. And then during rolling, take maximum advantage of it. Grab a white belt, grab a a new blue belt, a smaller blue belt, right? If you're a bigger guy, if you're 215 and you're a blue belt and you can grab a 150 pound blue belt and you can drill your technique on them, you know, it's probably going to work. You're going to get some good reps in. They're going to attempt to counter you with some decent skill. So you're going to have to put in a little work. So that's definitely like, that's a really good upgrade after you've beat up some white belts is to go get a smaller blue belt, but focus on that. Don't get lost in the idea of trying to win gym rolls, right? Because if you go in trying to win a gym roll, you're going to abandon whatever you're practicing because you're not good at that yet. It's not going to work all the time yet. Well, if you're trying to win a gym roll against some dude, you're going to go back to whatever thing has been working for you. But what has been working for you isn't the thing that you're trying to develop or you wouldn't be trying to develop it. So you need to back up a step. Remember that practice in the gym is about practice and focus on the thing that you are practicing. Know what it's going to be. Have your game plan written down, write it down. I want my single leg to my leg drag, to my knee on belly, to my near side arm bar. Bam, write it down. One, two, three, four. I'm going to rep that sequence as many times as possible against 
everybody in the gym. If I get it against all the white belts, great. If I get it against one blue belt, awesome. If I try it and get dumped on my head against a purple belt, still great because I was focused on the thing that I'm trying to get better at. And the only way to improve is to practice. And people lose sight of that and they stop practicing as soon as they start rolling. But that focused, mindful practice is how you as a student can take control of your jujitsu, even when you're in an environment that may not necessarily be focused on your individual improvement and push yourself to that next level of progress. Well said, well said. Gosh, you sound very analytical. You talk about writing things down. Do you suggest this for students? Should they be like doing spreadsheets? Should they be journaling? It's different for everybody, right? When I was coming up as a white and blue and then on into purple belt, I kept a blog. I wrote all my stuff down. I would would summarize classes and then I would kind of make goals for myself and record it all there. And that worked for me. Mm -hmm. I had a good friend of mine, Slidyfoot from the jiu-jitsu subreddit, Can Somez. I probably just butchered his name. He's going to be so mad at me. But he hand wrote everything in a journal physically, a physical handwritten journal. I could never do that. Right. That just does not work for me. He he, between rounds on the mats, he would write it down by hand. And I'm like, dude, that's wild. How do you do that? And he's like, how do you remember anything to write it down after class in a blog? And I'm like, this is just how I do things. Right. Hmm. So people are going to have very different ways that work for them in terms of recording these things. Right. Some people will use their phone as a uh, audio note device. They'll just hit record and just talk at it for for a couple of minutes or 30 Hmm. seconds. And then boom, they've got their note for later. Other people physically write it down. Some people take notes, you know, digital notes, other people, a blog or whatever, you know, spreadsheets. I know people that keep training logs of spreadsheets that they know every hour that they have trained their entire career, what they were working on during that hour, etc. Like they are really detailed about it. I could never be that detailed, but record it in a way that is easy that you will keep doing because there is nothing more useless than something that you won't keep doing, even if it's a fantastic idea. This is why when people ask, oh, which gym should I go to? The gym that's five minutes away, but is just some random dude and like 15 students or the gym that's an hour and a half away, but has 50 world champions on the mat. Well, how many times are you really going to drive an hour and a half to train versus how many times are you going to go five minutes to train? Ask yourself that question and then make that decision. It Mm -hmm. doesn't matter how good the method is if it's such a pain in your ass that you're going to stop doing it after the second time. So pick a method that is comfortable to do that is just good enough to keep you focused and keep you moving forward because just good enough is all that it has to be. You don't need perfect for it to work. It just has to be just good enough so that you have the information you need. That's it. Now, earlier we talked about BJJ Globetrotters. When you attend seminars, jujitsu camps, et cetera, how are you processing that information? What is your objective and, and how do you take away and, and what is your advice to people who've never been to that type of experience? So when I go to something that big, my goal is to experience the jujitsu of as many people as possible. At this point in my jujitsu career and in my life and in the way that I have developed the ability to learn, experiencing it means that I own it now, right? Like there are things that guys did to me at that camp 
that I just like, I have now done to all of my students repeatedly Hmm. because it was done to me. So now I have taken it away and now I know it. That is a sheer physical experience. My body remembers things now that never would have worked for me as a blue belt. Even as a purple belt and into brown belt, it probably wouldn't have worked very well. I've always been decently good at that physical learning where like when I, once I do something, I tend to remember it. Mm-hmm. But at this point, I'm very good at it, both because of when I see something like that, I give myself a little mnemonic for it. I name it. I explain it to myself as it's happening to me, which mm-hmm. is something that I can do because of the experience, right? Most mm-hmm. people probably aren't going to be able to do that. If you are a lower belt who is going to an event like that, I suggest scanning the room for an upper belt about your size, preferably two or three, and just attaching yourself to those people for the duration. Hmm. Try to roll with them. Try to watch them rolling with other people. See how they handle people of different sizes. See what techniques they use and look to focus down and steal from them steal from them, steal from everybody, but steal specifically from the people that are the closest analog to yourself. Because those are the places and those are the people that are going to have the most immediately relevant tips for you, the most immediately relevant techniques, the most immediate application of the fundamentals and the concepts are going to be from those people that are like you, but further down the road, right? They're just further along on the same path that you're walking. They're a little higher up the mountain. So if you look at them and you can take the path that they took, or at least avoid the pitfalls that you saw them hit, that'll help you. That will take you further. And going to those big camps and going to open mats, big open mats and events and stuff is a great way to find those people that may not be in your own gym. And especially as you get up towards like the higher ranks where if you're the brown belt in a gym, there's a good chance that if you're a 170 pound brown belt who is pretty strong, you're the only 170 pound brown belt who's pretty strong in your gym. Like that's just statistically, that's you. Your other brown belt is 135 pound lady. And then the third brown belt is a 270 pound guy that is like 60 years old. And his game consists of laying on you and wrist locking you, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're statistically going to run out of similar people to mentor as you go up the ranks, right? So going to these big events is a fantastic way to find people who are like you, who are a little further away, uh, along to look at, or just to have the experience of rolling with and enjoying because like getting to roll with like five black belts who were my size at a single event was amazing for me because that never happens. I am like mm-hmm. the only black belt, my size in the area. I think the next smallest black belt in the state might be Bruno Frazado. I'm like, dude, Mm -hmm. he would just break dance (laughs) on my face while having a conversation with somebody on the sidelines. And I'm like, okay, well, that was fun. I'm dead. So getting to roll with those people who are my size and a little like closer to my own level, or even just like a little bit beyond my level where I can kind of see, oh, wow, this guy does this thing. Oh, I can practice that. I can achieve that. That's something Mm -hmm. that I can get to from where I am. Whereas rolling with somebody like Bruno, I'm like, well... I guess this is what it's like to see the face of God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Oh, well. At this point, that's an unachievable metric for me. I'm 41. I am not going to see the kind of physical and skill progression in my lifetime that would put me on Bruno's level. What are you enjoying right now then? 
I am actually enjoying wrist locking people right now. Oh, wow. uh, my current project has been, yeah, wrist locks from everywhere because I took this from camp, the ice cream cone grip. So I then started wrist locking people off of Charles that Harriet. grip. Yeah, yeah Harriet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's yeah. fantastic. But yeah, so I started wrist locking people off of that grip. And so wow. then I was like, hmm, excellent. And so I was like, well, how many places can I find that wrist lock? And so I started out just like, all right, ice cream cone grip everywhere. That's mm-hmm. what I'm going to get. All these positions that like normally I might take a sleeve grip or a wrist grip or whatever. I'm just going to take the cone grip over and over mm-hmm. and over again. And so now I finished, kind of finished that. And it's a habit now to just get that grip. And so now I've moved into wrist locking out of it. All my students <laughs> all the time, everywhere. So wow. having a lot of fun with that. For the listeners, can you just describe the ice cream cone grip? Yeah. So the ice cream cone grip, if you haven't seen Charles's videos, it is instead of gripping at like the wrist or the gi, you will grip either three or four fingers all together and kind of squish them together. So the fingertips all bunch up and it creates a kind of cone shape. You can also do this if you're very strong or have big hands by wrapping around the knuckles themselves which is actually a much more painful version of this. But if you have smaller hands, it's not as secure as going to four fingers. And if you have very small hands or your partner is very large, you want to go to three fingers. And I have found that the three fingers leaving the pinky out for me is the strongest version of the grip. I don't know if Charles has a specific preference or thought on which version of the three finger one is better. But for me, that one has been the better one. Mm. So yeah, it's just bundling those fingers together and gripping those. And it really takes away your partner, your opponent's strength to break the grip. They can't swirl out of it because that hurts your fingers a lot. They Mm. can't counter grab to break the grip. They can't pull away from it because of the, the, the friction and the tightness on it. It's really a brutal grip. It's fantastic. I've loved every second of it. And all IBJJF legal as of it this is, recording. It is. As long as you are grabbing at least three fingers, it is 100% legal in every organization. Okay. I noticed on your schedule a couple things. You have something called brunch jitsu. Additionally, your classes in the evening, it says gi no gi, almost yeah. two hours long. Yeah. Then. So number one, what is brunch jitsu? Number that's- two... How do you Why divide? does everybody ask about that? That is that's one of the more common questions I get. I love for no I reason. love that name. And yeah. then uh, additionally, how are you dividing gi and no gi? Because it looks like it's one class and there's no separation designation between Correct. this is no gi classes. Right. Correct. So can you explain? I absolutely on? can. So brunch jitsu is because I am not under any circumstances getting up at six a.m. to have an early morning jujitsu class. <laughs> so instead, we have brunch jitsu. <laughs> not breakfast, okay. not lunch, because it's not at noon. But it's that it's just mid morning jujitsu. It's just because right. I wanted to. Pl- it's a little play on words. You know, yeah, yeah, trying yeah. to be silly. We have a lot Smart. of fun here, guys. But okay, it, and good. for whatever reason, I get a lot of questions about what is brunch jitsu, guys. It's just jujitsu that happens around brunch time. Don't read too much into it. But yeah, so the classes are all gi and no gi simultaneously. I encourage everyone to bring at least your gi top. You do not have to wear it the whole time. But if you're working on something in the gi and your partner does not have a gi top, just put your gi top on them. Generally works. I also have a bunch of loner gis. We just grab a gi top because when we train, we train both. If you are drilling something that is gi specific, 
you make sure that your partner has a gi to grab where you need to grab it. If you are training something that is no gi specific, which there isn't really anything, you just train it. If you want to roll no gi, just tell your partner you both ditch your gi tops. The way it usually works is the first half of the rolls are in the gi. And then as people start to get like hot, everybody starts to toss their gi tops and we do the last half of the rolls no gi. And you just, you roll to whatever rules you're planning to compete under. So like normally we roll prison rules. Which means if you're rolling with me, I'm going to heel hook you. I don't care what's going on, right? Because like I teach my white belts heel hooks. It's their fourth stripe material. They learn all Mm. the leg locks, knee bars, toe holds, heel hooks, cap slicers. It's all in their fourth stripe stuff. Wow. So I will happily throw a heel hook on a white belt. I ain't going to crank it or nothing, but Mm -hmm. we play prison rules. So it's no gi and gi will happen simultaneously every single night. I have Mm. some people that are gi focused. They want to train in the gi. They like the gi. They wear the gi for everything all the time. I have other people that are no gi focused. Kid who's making his MMA debut, he does not roll in the gi very much, right? He'll do it when he's working specifically through a curriculum item that is gi specific, of which there are a few. And then he just ditches it, goes back to rolling no gi because his focus is on a no gi relevant venue of MMA. He doesn't want to spend a lot of time getting used to gi grips and things like that right now. He wants to be ready to roll no gi to compete in MMA. So yeah, it's just a simultaneous class because again, there's absolutely no reason that everybody has to be training in the same uniform all the time as long as you have access to the gi for when your partner wants to use it, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and sometimes, oh, it means, ah, man, I didn't really want to roll no gi tonight, but my partner wants to roll no gi. You have to do a no gi round, suck it up, right? Mm -hmm. That sort of thing. So, you know, but it's worked very well. Everybody's been very happy with that that split. You mentioned heel hooks at Fourth stripe. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that. That's not always the convention at, at some academies, <laughs> as you know. Uh, at, increasingly, though, more and more of the black belts that I'm talking to, they are incorporating mm-hmm. the leg game and heel hooks in the white belt experience. Yep. Can you talk about your philosophy on that? And I mean, Kimura's can be devastating as well early on. Absolutely. So the the reason that I always wanted to, you know, always plan to incorporate it and have always kind of taught new people leg attacks is because I came up in a gym where I learned heel hooks. Like I was competing. So I was competing in the Wild West days of Naga where heel hooks were beginner legal. We had eight months of experience and we were just ripping them on each other. So I came up learning heel hooks as a beginner. And I was like, well, that's the reason that I never got injured with heel hooks. I've never been injured with a heel hook, not even close right? I got my ankle blown out with an Estima lock. And part of that is because I don't really train Estima locks. I've only ever really trained them with one guy who is super good at them, but also I wasn't training them very frequently. So like I wasn't prepared for the Estima lock to come on the way it came on, got my ankle blown up. That's why people get injured by heel hooks because they don't train them. They aren't ready for them to come on. They aren't ready to defend them appropriately. They don't realize they're in danger. They roll the wrong way or they wait too long and they get hurt. And that's an experience thing. If you start working on those as an experienced white belt who has already learned not to spaz on submissions and yank them to make sure that your opponent has time to tap, things like that, then you start learning the position. You start learning how to be safe in it. You start learning how to defend it. You start learning what is and is not dangerous about those leg attacks early. That means when you start to get into competitions where those are legal, you aren't just learning them for the first time three weeks before some guy tries to spin your foot around backwards. Because I have seen brown belts 
who are white belts at toe holds. They are white belts at knee bars. They are white belts at calf slicers because they didn't start trying to learn them until they were already a brown belt. And that's just a recipe for getting your shit fucked up. You will get hurt if your first real experience with a technique is when that technique is already competition legal for your rank, right? If you roll into a, to a brown belt competition and you have only been training knee bars for three weeks because you just got promoted, somebody is going to mess you up with a knee bar because you are not ready for the entries. You're not ready for the flow. You don't understand the pressure and the angles and the escapes and how to transition in and out of those knee bars. You're just going to get stuck in one and that's going to be it. You're going to get hurt because you don't understand the position. And so if you start people earlier, they get hurt less often. They understand the techniques better. They're better prepared to use them when they become relevant. You know, I don't want my, I don't want my people getting hurt by heel hooks. So I yeah. need them to learn early. Straight ankle locks are IBJJF legal at white belt, right? Uh, yes, correct. And they are, I think third stripe is when we start doing single leg X guard and the straight ankle lock. That's your introduction to ankle locks, right? And mm. to the leg game in general is your third stripe. And the only reason I don't do that sooner is because you have to teach stuff in some order. So I'm going to be neglecting some component if I put right. those sooner. So, you know, you do what you can. And there's a whole leg entanglement game there that you need to learn. I mean, right. that's a very complicated system mm-hmm. to itself or systems. Yeah. yeah. And starting with single leg X guard and the basic straight ankle lock is a good place to start for anybody, any white belts, mm-hmm. blue belts, purple belts, anybody who is thinking, you know, we don't really work this leg game in my gym. I don't but I need to learn it. I want to get it. Start with single leg X guard, the straight ankle lock and the crossbody ankle lock. If you work those positions, those are the fundamental core components of all of the controls that you will use in all the rest of the leg game. If you get good at those positions, that will then translate to those more elaborate leg entanglement games later when you pursue them. And that's it's white belt legal everywhere. Your instructor can't get mad at you for using them. So slide on into that single leg X straight ankle lock game. Get that. And that'll, that'll kind of uh, get you a leg up on the leg game, so to speak. Josh, what makes a great student? Willingness to listen. That's it. Like that's all I want from any student is for them to show up and be willing to listen. And that's it. Like if you do that, you will eventually be good. Like, yeah, it's great if you're a natural athlete who's in the gym seven days a week, twice a day, and you're, you're also lifting weights and you're studying tape and all that. That's fantastic. Awesome. Great. That's all bonus gravy stuff for people that want to be competitors. Mm -hmm. What I want out of any and every student is for them to come into the gym and listen and enjoy themselves right? That is the best student. Be passionate about their enjoyment of the gym. Come and listen. It, when I get people, I get occasionally like a teenagers and stuff that they don't want to listen. They want to try the random thing that they're trying. I'm like, I'm going to let you do that until you hurt yourself. And then maybe you'll listen. But mm. really the only thing I, I want is for people to come in and listen, like listen and do and show up. And that's it. And that's what makes a good student, the willingness to listen. That's interesting because I think that's one of the things that makes a great instructor is letting them go through the process when need be too. So in your eyes, what makes a great instructor? What makes a great instructor is the understanding that you are not the font of all jujitsu wisdom and that it is not a threat to you for your students to learn from other sources. 
that willingness to be wrong, to not know, to say, I don't know the answer to that will make you a great instructor eventually, right? If you're not there, if you're willing, because then you're still willing to learn, you're willing to listen, both to your students and to other instructors and to other resources. And that's then just makes you better. Now, there is also the key aspect of the ability to teach Right, which is a different skill from jujitsu. Teaching and being great at jujitsu are two very different skills. And being willing to admit that and then go and pursue the art of teaching the same way you pursued the art of jujitsu, very important, right? Because you can't just come up into a gym and just say, okay, I'm going to run a gym. I don't know anything about teaching. I don't know anything about classroom management. I don't know anything about curriculum design. I don't know anything about learning modalities. I'm great at jujitsu. Obviously, nothing could go wrong. Yeah, right. Be willing to look at how to teach, like learn how to teach, learn how to design curriculums, learn how people learn, learn how to present information, how to stage information. I see plenty of instructors that when they introduce a technique, they just introduce the whole fucking technique. Like here, here's the technique. Kabam. All right, go. Whoa, slow down. Like we're working. Um. Uh, it's got a fancy Japanese name, Uchimata, maybe. I don't know. It's called a wizard kick in wrestling, but it's mm-hmm. the overhook and then you turn and then you lean and you kick your leg straight back and knock them mm-hmm. over, right? Well, when I teach my students that, my wrestling students, my kids, it's taught in three stages. The first stage is make your opponent put their hand on the mat. We practice that a bunch. You're just leaning and making them put their hand on the mat. The second stage is to take away their hand. You're doing the same thing, but now you have control of their wrist and it dumps them over onto their side a little bit. It's not a big throw. The third stage is take away their legs. That's when you have that wrist control and you're pulling it. And instead of just raising your leg under their near leg, you're chopping it across both legs. And that throw is devastating. And my Mm -hmm. ribs are still sore because I let the children throw me with it. Right. And it hurts every single time. If you start your people on that version of throw, 40 seconds in, everybody in your room is crippled. Nobody is going to be able to train that night because you have just hammered everybody's ribs to pulp because you cannot train that particular version of the throw like a lot. You just can't, right? So you train, you spend most of your volume training the first two versions, and then you do a few reps of the one that really hurts. That's it. But if you don't think about the structure of your curriculum and the structure of teaching and the, what that lesson is going to do to your students, then you just, oh, hey, no, we're going to throw each other into the ground today. Here you go, guys. Kabam. And everybody's crippled. So being willing to look at how to teach, learn how to teach, even if every instructor does not want to adopt the reverse classroom and they think that idea is dumb, that's fine. I don't care. But I implore you, if you are an instructor of jujitsu or anything else, spend some time learning to teach. Get some resources. There are some fantastic books about it. There are classes that you can take that will teach you how to teach people. Spend some time, invest in it. Invest in yourself, invest in your students, invest in learning how to teach. It will elevate the entire sport if more instructors will just do that. I'll ask you to send me some links to some of the books that you that Absolutely, you admire, some of the teachers you mm-hmm. admire, et cetera. So one last question, Josh, I got a million more. I'll just be respectful of your time here. How did you learn to tie your belt? So I have a black belt in Taekwondo. I still <laughs> tie it exactly the same way I learned when I was 14 in Taekwondo, which is the, I, I put it behind me. I double loop it. I then wrap the front one under the behind, and then I do a little square knot. It's just a little square knot. 
and I tie it as loosely as possible so that the moment somebody grabs my belt as a grip, it comes off in their hand and they fall over and they look dumb. <laughs> so no uh, Keenan belt action on you, huh? Absolutely All not. Right. Note to self, note to self, don't use right? it on Josh. Well, Josh, thank you uh, so much for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Josh, where can we get more information about you? I have some gym social media stuff. We're uh, Apex Conyers on Instagram. I have the Apex Conyers YouTube channel as well. But mostly, come visit my gym. We are Apex Conyers, even though we're located in Covington, Georgia. You can check out our website at apexconyers.com. It has directions and the schedule and everything. Just show up. There are never any mat fees for anybody. Um, If you want to come train at my place for a month for free, sleep on the mats. Totally welcome. Anybody at any time. So that is the best way to get in touch with me is just come train with me. But if you want to follow the Instagram, follow the YouTube channel, stuff pops up there sometimes. And that's about it. And Josh, the spelling for Apex Conyers. A-P-E-X-C-O-N-Y-E-R-S. We will have all those links in the show notes as well. And we will see you guys. Remember to give us a subscribe, thumbs up, and the whole deal. And uh, listen to all your podcatchers of choice. And I am Adolfo Frontier, host. Thanks so much for listening to Forever White Belt. Josh, thank you so much again for your time. Thank you. See you guys.